Greetings and welcome to episode 61 of Beyond Hua Xia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we're going to be talking about the legacies of the Japanese Empire. Now, if you've been listening to the last 20-odd episodes or so, then there's nothing in this episode that's going to be new to you. Nevertheless, we still need to sort of bring it all together um, in a, 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 a quick, efficient uh, conclusion uh, to our uh, topic of the Japanese Empire. So let's talk about the major legacies. What are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about the legacies of defeat, the legacies of the atomic bomb being used on Japan, the legacies of the U.S. occupation, Cold War politics, ethnic unmixing, and anti-Western discourse. Now, I'll go through these one by one, but ultimately many of them will get mixed in together and we'll be talking about them sort of uh, sometimes simultaneously. Okay, let's begin with uh, defeat and political dismemberment. Um, the Japanese Empire loses World War II, a very obvious fact, all right? Uh, but defeat is has its own legacy in and of itself. What are the implications of losing a war? Um, if you win a war, you don't have to face up to anything that your country has done, uh, either during that war um, or oftentimes in the lead up to that war as well, because a new narrative gets constructed in which everything is sort of leading uh, to this end result of a war, and then if someone loses that war, well, if uh, eventually when someone loses that war, they then have to shoulder pretty much 100% of the blame. Um, you have no choice. You've lost the war. You no longer have the means to contest, to control the narratives of where you've been, uh, where you are, and where you're going. Um, and if you win a war, you don't have to really face up to anything that you did. Okay, there's no sharp and conspicuous disjuncture with the past. Uh, but if you lose a war, then somehow there has to be a reckoning. Somehow your narrative changes, and you're not in control of that narrative anymore. You might be able to have uh, exert limited control in certain domestic contexts towards your own domestic audiences, but even there your control is going to be limited. Uh, because the new great power in the world, whether they occupy your country or not, usually they are in some form, and Japan was absolutely occupied, uh, they are controlling both the international narrative and the narrative in your country. Now, Japan will be quote-unquote lucky in the sense that the United States will only take sort of a hostile, punitive type of an approach to Japan for the first couple years of the occupation. And by 1947, it's a reverse course when you see the, the uh, Cold War uh, arising and the Chinese communists likely to win on the mainland um, and the realization that the United States needs to anchor its post-war Asian order uh, in something that's not going to be based on the Chinese mainland. It's going to have to be outside the mainland. It's going to need to be in Taiwan, in Japan, uh, parts of Korea, South East Asia, Indonesia, um, you know, so these are all sort of the implications of what the U.S. Uh, has to deal with, uh, what Japan has to deal with. Um, you, know, you have the rise of the Cold War, and then you have the outbreak of the Korean War, and that sort of just as you know, divine aid for Japan. So the United States doesn't have uh, you know, a very long period of time in which they're looking to impose a sweeping, punitive narrative of what happened. All right, as we saw before, they'll come up with sort of a quick what went wrong, uh, a few scapegoats, the militarists, um, a very ambiguous subjective category. The militarists were the big bad boys who sort of took Japan off of its proper Western developmental path um, and made it a deviant empire, a deviant nation state. And our job is now to put it back in uh, its correct place prior to embarking on the empire and picking a fight with us. Uh, so in this sense, Japan is very lucky 
Um, you know, most countries that lose a war and have to sign unconditional surrender documents um, lose control of the narrative of what happened and how we got to this point as well. And oftentimes losing control of that narrative means that you get blamed for everything. Um, and it's fairly uh, comprehensive in who gets blamed. Uh, you could you know, argue with the fact that maybe uh, Germany wasn't thoroughly purged of whatever evil influences that may have led it uh, down the, the road in World War II. Obviously, you still have neo-Nazi movements and white nationalists in Germany today. Obviously, it never went away. But I think there's, there, there's really no denying the fact that um, the, the bad things, all right, the undis indisputably evil things that the Nazis did. Um, during World War II, even if you can just you, you, you can see how the geopolitical conflict with other countries comes into being, and that makes sense, and that in and of itself isn't sort of like terribly immoral. Um, you know, things like the Holocaust, you know, ethnic cleansing, uh, those sort of things. I mean, that's pretty bad. All right, um, uh, you can't really deny that that has had a prominent afterlife in the educational curriculum and official government narratives of what happened and what we need to do. Um, and uh, yes, it wasn't 100% thoroughly sweeping and comprehensive. That's why you still have white nationalist movements and neo-Nazi movements, um, but nothing like what happened in Japan. Uh, in Japan, after the first two years, almost everything is swept under the rug. And the Japanese are, are, are not just urged to forget, uh, they are actively courted <laughs> by multiple uh, strong powers uh, to basically be a wild card, uh, uh, a wild card in the Cold War. Who can claim the loyalties of Japan? See, it turns out that there's actually a great benefit to having been an advanced industrial country, because that means that in the post-war world, you still have great potential. Everyone knows that uh, if we just put new people in charge and harness your, your economic, military, uh, you know, potential in a different direction, um, you know, with, 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 with us in charge, um, you know, we might try to revive you uh, because it's not going to take that much to get you on a very sophisticated first world level economy that we are. Um, you know, you're not like these underdeveloped countries. You have the know-how, you have the knowledge, you have the network still, um, you have the experience uh, that no one else in Asia has. So you are a valuable commodity still. All right, again, a little different than with Germany. Uh, Germany doesn't stand out. I mean, it does stand out a little bit, but it doesn't stand out uh, so much from all of its European neighbors. There are many other European countries where you would say, uh, you know, we have the skills, expertise, knowledge, education, uh, first world economies, everything. Uh, Germany is just one more of those. Uh, in Asia, the Japanese are a little more conspicuous in that regard, and everyone's going to court their favor uh, starting around 1940. 47. Um, so defeat is a legacy. You lose control of the narrative, but, but Japan, and I, have, I think you'd say from a bird's eye perspective, gets off a little easier than most losers of a major war tend to get off. Okay. Now, that said, Japan does lose a ton of territory. All right. Easily, you know, more than double, triple, I don't know the exact numbers of the actual territory of the home four islands. Okay, think about this. If you are an American, uh, you've never really had to deal with the loss of territory. Even if it only exists in your mind, you never visit this, you probably have some sort of a consciousness in your mind that America equals this. Imagine one day, 
if you know the U.S. lost a war and uh, California was cut out of the U.S. as wartime reparations. That's not yours anymore. Let's say the you know in a, a fantastic uh, uh, future, the U.S. gets into a war with uh, 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 you know China. Okay, China wins the war, um, and during the war, China used the pretext of previous Mexican influence in the uh, uh, the U.S.'s Southwest. Uh, to say we're liberating the Spanish, the, the oppressed Spanish-speaking peoples of uh, New Mexico, of Arizona, of California, of Texas, um, and they said, look back to historical precedent. Back in the in 18th, 19th century, this was Spanish-speaking lands. This, you know, it was a part of Mexico, and the U.S. took it by force. And then they, and then the United States actively discriminates against Spanish-speaking migrants and people who they see as Mexicans. Um, and so we're going to use this as a pretext. Hey, we're liberating the Mexicans. We're liberating the Latinos from oppressive white American rule. And when China then wins the war, they say, "Hey, California, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, you know, Texas, we're sending them back to Mexico, or we set up an independent state." Okay, the free state of Arizona, the Republic of California, the Republic of Texas. Um, and then, you know, it's like the equivalent of Manchukuo. You see where I'm going with this? That would be the equivalent of Manchukuo. And if China won the war, they could then naturalize that and draw in selective historical evidence to support that. And then Americans would have this chip on, the so- on, 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 on their shoulder uh, for the next 200 years. That was our territory. All right. And they'd marshal their selective evidence to show that it belonged to them. All right, so I'm just trying to give you a sense of what the the analogous situation could be if you are an American and you're trying to think about what this means, okay? To lose territory that you have naturalized in your mind as belonging to your nation state. Americans really haven't had to deal with the loss of any territory, you know, really. Uh, nothing major at all. This is This is unique in the world today. In fact, I can't think of any other country of uh, such a size and influence in the world that hasn't had to deal with the loss of territory. All the European countries uh, had great power and they all lost all of their colonies more or less. Um, And so they went through the process of being cut down to size, even if it wasn't necessarily defeat and war that led to the loss of those colonies. Um, uh, uh, You know, Japan is going to lose everything that it's acquired since 1895. Uh, this influences your 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 conception of who you are. Okay, during the empire, the conception of who was a Japanese or a part of the Japanese world was huge. It was expansive. It was uh, generally inclusive, even if on the ground it was sometimes exclusive. In theory, it was very inclusive. Okay, and a sense of of Japanese ness was all over wherever the Japanese uh, spread their influence. Um, and you lose a war, you lose that territory, um, uh, Japan's going to lose their, their imperial lands in such a way that w- it will encourage this, this artificial idea that you are a homogenous nation state. This is, you've always been like this. This is the natural state of Japan and anything else is an aberration that shouldn't happen. Okay, if Japan had retained anything beyond the home four islands and Okinawa, uh, it would have dealt a major blow to this idea of homogenous Japan that's always been this way. Because you would have had territories included in the Japanese, the post-war Japanese state that had already undergone some form of naturalization that there is diversity um, in the Japanese race. 
okay, that would have kept alive the idea of the multi-directional uh, uh, ancestry, the mongrel ancestry as a good thing that we saw during the empire. Uh, that, that, that would have kept that idea alive. Let's say if you still had Taiwan, if they still had Manchuria, Manchukuo, uh, if they you know, just managed to hold on to Micronesia, any of these sort of things. Um, that would have challenged this new post-war narrative of who the Japanese are. You see, China, they lost a lot, of, they lost some territory in the 20th century as well. They were an empire at the beginning of the 20th century, the Qing Empire, um, and they eventually lose Outer Mongolia. Um, and yet China still has a lot of other lands that are, you know, decidedly non-Han. They, they have massive ethnic diversity. Um, and so you'll still get this creation of the idea uh, especially during the communist years, the Mao Zedong years, that China is at heart a multi-ethnic state. Uh, always has been, uh, always will be, and that's a good thing. Now, whether or not they actually uh, act like that on the ground is another matter, but at least in theory, again, on paper, uh, even though China loses territory, it loses only some of its ethnic other territory. Uh, Japan loses pretty much all of it, with that exception of Okinawa, which we talked about last time. Okay? Um, political cost of defeat. Okay, defeat will encourage a deeply negative view of anything that is identified as having contributed to your defeat, because defeat causes suffering. Uh, defeat is humiliating. It's not fun to be on the losing side of a war. It's not fun for anyone to be in the war, uh, but at least one side's going to win. And the side that wins will have a better time dealing with the fallout of the horrors of war than the side that loses. So there's a political cost of defeat. People need to be blamed. There's going to be some sort of soul searching, not a, not, not, not a ton in Japan as we've seen, uh, but you're, you are going to want to find a few scapegoats, okay, like the militarist, like Hideki Tojo, not the emperor Hirohito. He's going to be, he's, he, he, he's going to come out smelling pretty clean out of all of this. Um, you, might, you might almost say that there aren't going to be a ton of human beings who are going to be held accountable or blamed for what happened. Um, you're, you're just going to have this abstract idea of the empire. All right, the people who, the abstract, you know, people who went out into the empire, they're to blame. And if we happen to encounter them or you know, see them when they come back home, uh, we'll blame them for it. There'll be prejudice and discrimination against them. Uh, there'll be a few high-profile military figures who will be blamed. Um, but generally speaking, that's not a whole lot, all right? Just sort of the, the, the vague sense of the Japanese empire in general, uh, that's going to be seen in a negative light. You know what? The empire, when we went beyond our islands, it just, create, it just brought a lot of suffering for us, ultimately. Uh, it's going to be a fairly simplistic view of the empire for most people in Japan. Of course, there will be uh, a right-wing faction that will continually uh, defend the war and uh, uh, sort of reinvigorate the greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere discourse about how it was anti-Western imperialist liberation movement and we were actually doing a good thing. And there's some truth to that. Um, but there's also a lot of self-deception in those arguments as well. But that fringe uh, uh, right, rightist element does exist. In a more benign form, it has existed at the mainstream of Japanese politics in which they create textbooks and you know history lessons and whatnot that just most people, it's just ignored. It's not negatively assessed. Uh, it's not sort of, there's very few attempts to rehabilitate it. It's just, it didn't happen. Most people just don't think about it. 
like I said before, I've had students from Japan come and take this class at my university, and they say pretty much, you know, 95% of everything you talked about in this class is something I had never encountered in any history lesson growing up through Japanese schools. All right? Never. It was just, we just don't talk about it. It didn't happen. It's not on our, it, it, it's not on our radar screen. Okay? Uh, that's what you'll generally end up getting uh, among most educated Japanese. We had an empire? Really? Taiwan? Okinawa? <laughs> you know, uh, China and all those sort of stuff? You just don't talk about it that much. The political dismemberment of the empire for an island nation like this, uh, it puts the empire out of sight. Out of sight, out of mind. Especially so in a maritime empire. All right, uh, you know, it was overseas. It wasn't contiguous. It wasn't like with China or the Ottoman Empire um, where you actually, you know, you could just keep walking overland and you'll run into other people who are different than you but also a part of the same political state. Uh, Japan, you keep on walking, uh, you walk into the ocean. <laughs> All right, you have to make a concerted special effort to get out of the Japanese islands by boat or by plane and, uh, you know, go to these other lands that are a part of the Japanese empire. Now that you've lost those, you know, it was already sort of there was this, this uh, division, this geographical divide that uh, in, you know, helps, it facilitates forgetting that these were once a part of Japan and had been naturalized as a part of Japan. Uh, because they already were sort of beyond the ocean to begin with. All right, what about the atomic bomb? The atomic bomb, you know, we had a whole episode on this, of course. We don't need to go over everything. Uh, but the American decision to drop the atomic bomb in 1945, uh, we already saw that there's a lot of contradictions, complex complexities in there, and very likely uh, it didn't have to be dropped. Uh, and certainly you didn't have to have two of them, but we're not going to go back into that debate. The, the fact is that uh, two bombs, two atomic bombs were dropped on Japan. Um, and what they end up doing is they end up reinforcing a, a, a narrative of defensive imperialism and Japanese suffering as the most important elements, the most important takeaways of the Japanese empire, um, which will, again, uh, this is the victim, victimization uh, narrative will help uh, reinforce the desire to simply be indifferent to the empire. It didn't really happen. There's nothing good that, that can come out of remembering the Japanese empire. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of the war, uh, the dropping of the atomic bomb was proof that the West was heinously aggressive and immoral, and our imperialist ideals were just and uh, legitimate at the time. You see, uh, this is why the world needed a Japan, a non-Western advanced power, to kick the West out of Asia, because look what they do. They're willing to do this stuff. We wouldn't have done something like that. <laughs> Probably. That's not true. Uh, almost anyone in the same situation would have made the same calculating decision based on their self-interest. However, it reinforces this narrative. And we saw that narrative uh, uh, be explored and regurgitated in Godzilla. Even if Godzilla, for many people, will become simply a horror movie action flick, uh, if you look deeper, and especially if you put it in the immediate context of post-war Japan, people who actually had a memory of surviving the atomic bomb being in Japan when that happened, um, you know, it's easy then to see how this was some sort of a scar that people had to deal with. And it just encouraged the idea. The suffering happened on the home islands. You, know, you Japanese who are abroad, uh, you, you aren't real Japanese to begin with. Uh, we don't have those lands anymore. And you weren't here when we got firebombed and had the atomic bomb dropped on us. Okay? Uh, but generally speaking, it encourages, uh, you know, sympathy and inward looking, uh, feeling sorry for yourself when you've been the subject of an atomic blast, uh, understandably. Um, and it helps to overshadow everything else 
um, that happened during the empire, that happened during the war, and especially overshadow Japan's own war crimes abroad. The atomic bomb overshadows everything. And when you have public commemoration events and whatnot, it's about the atomic bomb and Japanese suffering. Uh, it is not about anything that the Japanese may have done to anyone else outside of Japan. All right, and the atomic bomb facilitated both the uh, anyone who wants to take up the thread of hey righteous de defensive imperialism you started it you started the fire in our house and we just tried to put the fire out and then you responded with our firefighting efforts by dropping a friggin bomb on us a, a, a friggin nuclear bomb you, it just proves that you guys were the immoral ones from the start and our cause was just that's a minority faction. A little more visible in the immediate post-war era uh, today, less and less, more of a right-wing fringe argument. Uh, but the mainstream argument is, hey, we, 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 we were the victims. We were the victims. And everything that bad uh, happened during the war happened in the Japanese islands, not in the colonies, not in China, um, not to U.S. POWs. It happened to us right here. And you are the immoral ones. And that's why we commemorate our suffering and no one else's suffering every August 6th. Cold War politics. Okay, uh, what are the implications with regard to the former Japanese Empire? Something we've touched on many times. All the other major geopolitical actors during the Cold War will aid and abet Japanese historical amnesia. No major player has a compelling reason to make Japan fully accountable for anything that they did until you have the reform era in China and uh, sort of the, the, the death, the passing of the generations that were first involved in World War II to begin with. Once you have China enter its reform era in the 1980s, the 1990s, um, suddenly you'll see direct competition, economic competition, capitalist economic competition between China and Japan. And China will realize uh, it was a big mistake uh, to try to court Japan's favor to undermine the U.S. occupation. Now we, you know, sort of when we were thinking about communist versus capitalist worlds, now we're essentially capitalist as well, and we're in direct competition with Japan. We're not trying to, like, you know, uphold the communist ideals uh, and, you know, defeat the capitalist world. We're trying to win on capitalist terms, and now Japan is again uh, perceived as a direct threat. And many Chinese leaders, many other Asian leaders will basically say, why again did we try to aid and abet Japanese historical amnesia? They did some pretty awful shit to everyone else. Uh, maybe we were under the influence of the United States, which, you know, didn't want this to be brought up too much. We have a few bad apples. Let's just, you know, quarantine off that, uh, that explanation of who's to blame and move on with our lives because Japan is a very valuable ally if we can recreate the Japanese empire under our umbrella. Um, and so many, you know, you know, many Asian states maybe voluntarily are sort of being uh, pressured by the United States. Let it go. Let it go in the past. You'll benefit if uh, you, you know, willingly come under our umbrella, this great crescent that we're trying to construct uh, outside of continental communist uh, influence. Okay, um, and so you know, it's not until uh, really the the Chinese become their own capitalist competitors with Japan that you're going to see some Chinese leaders. And this began so a little in the 1980s, definitely by the 1990s, all the way up until today. Whenever it's convenient, they'll bring out World War II, Japanese atrocities, Nanjing Massacre, Comfort Women, whatever, uh, to keep beating Japanese leaders with. And they will conveniently forget that Mao Zedong uh, in the 1950s, I heard a whole research article on this at one point, uh, Mao Zedong at one point told a visiting delegation of Japanese op uh, op 
opera actors. Um, it was unofficial. There's no official relations. So you could only have cultural delegations in the 1950s. You couldn't have exchange of ambassadors or anything. Uh, they came and they started to apologize for what uh, Japan had done during World War II. They felt compelled to apologize for what Japan had done to China. And Mao Zedong says, stop apologizing. You can't apologize every day, can you? It's not good for a nation to apologize and whine every day. We Chinese know that well. Uh, you've already apologized. That's it. No more apologies. Right? Uh, that is the sentiment that is totally forgotten in the 1990s when Chinese leaders realize, hey, this is a really useful political tool. Whenever it's in our interest to do so, we can shame Japan on the international stage by calling for apologies. Um, and Japan actually, leader, various leaders have apologized in, in one form or another, um, but it's never going to be enough. All right, it's never going to be enough. Uh, you can, you know, all Asian leaders actually can bring that up whenever it's convenient uh, for them to do so. Um, but the problem is that most of them decided they we're only going to start doing it in the 1990s, um, and they hadn't done it in the decades beforehand. Um, and so Japan then can come back and they can say, hey, this is all, these are all bygones. We signed treaties in which we resolved all of these issues, uh, which then leaves it to sort of the unofficial masses to try to bring lawsuits and, you know, get the media to shame their leaders into saying, hey, no one ever brought Japan to account for this. Um, and that's true. And that's true. And that's one of the biggest legacies of Cold War politics is this precious 30, 40 year window of time from 1945 or well, 1947, I guess, reverse course, um, until the mid 1980s in which no one really had a vested interest in uh, forcing Japan's atrocities down the throat of its pedagogical materials and national consciousness in the way that I think it was done to a greater extent in Europe with the Germans. Um, what did the Soviets, the Russians, the Americans, the Chinese during the Mao era tell the Japanese? You are a great and peaceful people. The empire was an aberration perpetuated by rogue individuals, and those rogue individuals are now purged, reformed, or uh, you know brainwashed by the Americans. But regardless, that's the, they're not reflective of the Japanese nation, which is good and peaceful. We do, and, and, and we want to try to you know show you the light, the communist light, the American light, whatever it is. We'll put you on the right path. Okay. Um, let's see here. U.S. occupation and subordinate status. All right. What are the implications of the U.S. occupation and Japan's subordinate status to the United States? Um, well, uh, you might say that there's some positive economic implications. Okay. Uh, one of my favorite anecdotes is uh, this eyewitness account in which um, uh, uh, a Japanese uh, businessman was saying that when he heard that they would be occupied by the Americans and not the Russians, they, uh, he and all of his business colleagues got together and popped a, qu a uh, bottle of champagne because they realized, thank God, the Americans will want to stimulate the economy. The Americans will want to keep business leaders in power. Um, whereas the, 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 the communist Soviets, Soviets, God knows what they're going to do to us. God knows. Uh, but it's certainly not going to be good. Um, and so, you know, and, and this to a certain extent was true, especially after the Korean War. All right. There were some positive economic implications for Japan as a whole. Uh, this means that you're going to be occupied by the most powerful uh, capitalist economic power in the world. Okay. What it also means is you're going to have access to wealthy capitalist markets in that American orbit. That means uh, wealthy developed economies in Europe and in North America. 
All right, and the United States will actually artificially reorient your economy towards that part of the world. You know, naturally, Japan's most natural trading partners are Asia, mainland Asia. It should be China. Essentially, that's what the empire was all about. It was an attempt to take over the sources of wealth that are naturally closest to Japan. That's what the whole empire was about. And now that the empire is over and communist China is off limits, where are you going to uh, you know, plug in the Japanese economy to? Uh, European and North American markets. All right. And what this will end up doing was it'll give Japanese, uh, uh, you know, entrepreneurs, Japanese artists, uh, you know, Japanese engineers, continuous access to that knowledge economy of Europe and America, uh, those capitalist markets, those those consumers. All right, cultural models. You'll 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 continue to get Hollywood movies that are shown in Japan. You're not going to get Hollywood movies shown in China or in Russia. Forget about it. All right, we know that the Japanese cartoon industry that started to take off in the 1960s, uh, many people who were involved in that, Japanese you know, uh, uh, authors and cartoonists and whatnot, illustrators, they said they were directly inspired by, by Disney, by Disney cartoons, Disney creations. All right, Godzilla, they would say, uh, you know, even though the uh, thematic inspiration is recent Japanese history, the actual idea of the monster itself was inspired by King Kong. I can assure you that Chinese are not watching uh, any incarnation of King Kong in the 1960s, like the Japanese are. They don't have access to that stuff. Okay, the U.S. occupation will end up facilitating cultural exchange with the one global power that can then disseminate it to the other wealthy global capitalist markets. What this means then is that you know Japan has all that know-how. It has all that technical know-how. It has the experience bred from 50 years of the empire. All right, so they, they now have a market for small electronics, the things that would cater to a European and American audience, those, those wealthy consumer markets. Remember, Korean War helped Japan, Japanese factories get back in motion. We're going to create transistor radios. We're going to create Jeeps, all right, all the things that the American military needs. It's not a big leap from there in the 1960s then to transfer that expertise, which has been revived and is a legacy of what you had for the 50 years of empire, to then start making, you know, video games um, like you're going to see with companies like Nintendo. That's a direct result of being put into the American orbit, I guarantee that if the Soviets occupied Japan, you would not have had the rise of companies like Nintendo or all the other famous you know, Japanese car manufacturers. I keep bringing Nintendo out as an example because I love video games. <laughs> uh, but you know, think of all the car manufacturers. Toyota. These, all, these major companies all had a history. They were major companies during the, during the, the Japanese empire. Um, and they're going to get a chance to be revived uh, if they're willing to be reoriented towards the wealthiest economy and wealthiest, most numerous consumers in the world. Um, you know, that is a boon for Japanese business, for the Japanese economy. Japan will be able to create uh, what you might think of as a shadow version of Hollywood at a fraction of the price, of you know, the labor price, to fill this insatiable global demand for leisure entertainment. And Japan, crucially, will be seen as a, a, an Asian intermediary, an Asian middleman for U.S. pop culture. A lot of the pop culture that will get disseminated throughout Asia uh, from the 1960s all the way up until today 
are Japanese uh, productions or Japanese reworkings, adaptations of American or European uh, models. I don't want to say the Japanese are sort of slavish imitators. That's not at all the impression I'm trying to give. They have many original creations that then the Americans and Europeans adapt from them. But regardless, you're being put into this network that, that gives you this creative nexus, this creative mass um, that can serve as inspiration in both directions. In both directions, in a lot of U.S. pop culture, if you were to send it straight uh, to Indonesia, straight to Taiwan, straight to Korea, it may not take, it may not you know, lay down organic roots. If it goes through Japan first and the Japanese rework it for Asian sensibilities or you know, however you want to think of that process, uh, it has a much better chance of succeeding. And so Japan will become sort of this, this middleman for U.S. popular culture. And then that eventually will go in reverse and things from Japan will be going straight into America. And no one denies that Japanese cultural influence is absolutely huge throughout the world. I'm often shocked. One of the things I often have always noticed and I sometimes uh, bring up as an interesting illustrative anecdote is when I teach my courses at my university, um, you know, I, I came in as a China specialist and I was like, okay, I'm going to come and I'm going to teach all these Chinese history courses. And I was shocked at how little demand there was for Chinese history courses. It's changed and now it's a bit better. Um, but, uh, you know, and over and over again, I'd be like, how come the Chinese history classes aren't filling up? Is it, doesn't everyone want to learn about China? It's huge now in the world. It's, it's, it's influence is bigger than Japan's. Um, and I kept on finding out that what people really wanted, both the students and the administrators said, can you teach a Japanese history course? Everyone wants Japanese. Everyone wants to learn Japanese more than they want to learn Chinese. I find out that I get students coming into my Chinese history courses six, seven years ago, um, and uh, none, none of them had taken any sort of Chinese language, uh, but they had taken Japanese. Sometimes they got Japanese in high school. When I was in high school, you could take Japanese as a language. I didn't take it. I took uh, four years of Spanish. Um, but you could take Japanese, a whole four years of Japanese. Um, now it's, it's Chinese in the high schools, but this is sort of the soft cultural power that the Japanese empire, uh, put under the U S umbrella, uh, the influence, the cultural influence that it allowed it to have. People want to learn about the history and language of the country that brought them manga of the country that brought them Pokemon of the country that brought them Nintendo. And until China is able to produce equivalent cultural mass, you know, produced cultural phenomena that appeal to consumers around the world, uh, they won't have that soft cultural influence that people say, I want to learn Chinese. I want to learn all about Chinese history because they've produced the next equivalent of Nintendo, the next equivalent of Pokemon. Uh, you don't have those equivalency, those e e equivalencies yet. Uh, Japan will dominate that niche part of the global cultural economy. Um, and it's because they are occupied by the United States and, and made an integral part of the U.S. economic global network. Now, of course, there are uh, negative socio-political implications of all of this. Uh, Japan's outsized economic role in the West, in the American-mediated capitalist global economy, comes at the humiliating expense of, of any sort of assertive political role for Japan. Okay, Japan is not going to have a, a, an, an assertive political or by extension military role anywhere in the world. It's going to be economic and it's going to be cultural. For many people, if you can get over sort of issues of masculinity and whatnot, uh, that's just fine. Uh, for a lot of people, though, who can't get over those sort of issues, uh, this is very emasculating. 
Okay, it can be very emasculating for some people, usually men, uh, who see military and political influence as an extension of your manliness, of your 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 culture, your ethnicities, masculinity, um, and to have politicians who have almost zero influence in the world other than the economic aid that they might be able to get off, to have zero political influence and zero military influence in the world, every single major decision of what Japan's going to do with its influence has to basically be approved by the United States, more or less. Obviously, you can, you know, uh, uh, have ticky-tack debates with me of this or that and whatnot, but I mean, generally, Japan can't do anything major on the world stage if, that the U.S. doesn't want it to do, because the U.S. essentially guarantees Japan's uh, security. All right, and you know, again, some people would say that's wonderful. <laughs> Let the U.S. deal with all the crippling expenses of having this massive military, and we can now spend our money on other things. Uh, other people will say this is humiliating, uh, this is embarrassing, this is emasculating. And what are the cultural influences of this? Let me uh, uh, introduce you to cultural critic and artist Murakami Takashi, who has argued in the past couple decades. He said that Japan never came to terms with defeat, the bomb, the U.S. occupation, and the subsequent subservience to the U.S. in all realms of, of politics. Murakami Takashi says that uh, what happened after the war uh, created a perpetual infantilization and deformities in the Japanese character. And he talks about this phenomenon of cuteness, kawaii, hello kitty. Uh, you know, the idea of this eternal childhood, people that never grow up. It says, we're not real adults. This has infantilized us. Like we're always children to an adult patriarchal figure like the United States, Uncle Sam says we have a crisis of masculine insecurity. All right, we, we vilify patriarchal authority. We've desacralized the emperor. We've condemned our military leaders. We discredited our returned male soldiers. And says this is not healthy. This is not healthy. We perceive ourselves and are perceived as eternal children who are not allowed or are not willing to grow up. And we exist in an unequal and abusive relationship with the United States. Here's what Murakami said in 2005, quote, For the past 60 years, Japan has been a testing ground for an American-style capitalist economy, protected in a greenhouse, nurtured and bloated, and bloated, nurtured and bloated to the point of explosion. The results are so bizarre, they're perfect. We Japanese are truly, deeply pampered children. And as pampered children, we throw constant tantrums while we are enthralled by our own cuteness. It's the denouement of a culture nourished by trauma, snugly raised in an incubator of a society gone slack. You don't have to agree with that, uh, but that is one particular take um, on the cultural effects uh, of uh, you know Japan, sort of a national character, I suppose, if you want, of, of all of this stuff. Okay, finally... In this regard, the U.S. umbrella over Japan revives the idea that Japan is special and is something separate from Asia. Sort of like the, you know, the British, uh, the English often have this sense of superiority with uh, the European mainland. Uh, yeah, we're, we're similar to Europe in some ways, but we're special. We're different. We're not connected to you. Um, and we don't always have to play by the same rules as you do. All right, you definitely get that, 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 that sort of attitude uh, is widespread among British politicians. Uh, and in Japan, uh, you'll sort of get this artificially created idea, uh, or I guess resuscitation of the idea that Japan is special. 
the U.S. cast its umbrella over us. We're the white, successful Asians, and our now intimate association with the United States confirms that. Okay, it confirms that. Uh, that we are somehow special. We are, we're, 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 we're Asians who aren't really Asians. Uh, geographically, we're Asians, but in every other non-geographical sense, um, we're not Asians anymore. Okay? We're not Asians anymore. Um, the U.S. recreation of the Japanese Empire, however, all right, the U.S. recreation of the Japanese Empire under a U.S. military blanket uh, has one crucial omission, China. Okay, that was the one part of the empire that the U.S. couldn't recreate in any formal or informal sense whatsoever. Uh, you lost China to the communists. The communists and you were, you know, were quite hostile to one another. Um, and that was an area of Japanese influence, you, know, you might say the heart of the empire, that uh, the U.S. was not able to extend its, its political influence into. And in that sense, the fall of the Japanese empire and the limited U.S. recreation of the Japanese empire, excluding China has uh, led to a new legacy. And here, and, and I'm being very cryptic and vague here because it's kind of a difficult point to bring up uh, to, to fully articulate. Um, what I want to say here is that all the way up until 1945, the Chinese heartland had been the target for 2,000 years of outsiders usually nomads, continental nomads from the realm of Manchuria or Mongolia or Central Asia, who would target the wealth, the agricultural wealth of the Chinese heartland between the Yellow River and the Yangtze River, um, and uh, you know, set up a larger empire that went well beyond the Chinese heartland, but was financed and supported with the wealth and resources of the Chinese heartland. And in that sense, the Japanese were sort of the, the, the post-industrial revolution power that was able to continue the tradition of outsider Asians targeting the central Chinese heartland, the wealth of the central Chinese heartland, uh, you know, resources, economy, whatnot, uh, as the anchor for a larger empire that stretched far beyond the Chinese heartland. Okay, you have, you know, the Mongols who conquered China in the 13th century, but that was only one part of a much larger empire, and the resources of China financed that empire. The Manchus did that with the Qing dynasty. Their empire was much larger than the Chinese heartland, but the Chinese heartland was the economic prize that financed empire in Tibet, in Xinjiang, in Mongolia. The Japanese are the one and only industrial power. You know, uh, you know. Once the Industrial Revolution destroys the advantages of the nomads, the Japanese are the only industrial power that uh, is able to come in and basically replicate this this dynamic of uh, uh, outsiders. In this case, again, northern outsiders, northeastern outsiders. You can almost have sort of an interesting parallel with the Manchus coming from the northeast as well, who target the Chinese homeland as their ultimate resource base for financing the rest of their empire throughout Asia. In this sense, you know, a new maritime, partially maritime, partially overland empire. Um, maybe their heartland is a little bit further north than it was usually. It's not the Yellow River and Yangtze River, although they will try to conquer that in World War II. It's more Manchuria. But nevertheless, it's the same idea. It's the same idea. And the fact that the U.S. will recreate the Japanese empire uh, almost everywhere except for mainland China. All right, except for mainland China, uh, ends this process 
that's been going on for 2,000 years of northern, northeastern outsiders preying upon the Chinese agricultural wealthy heartland to finance a much larger Asian empire. That's over. All right. For the first time since 1644, when the Ming Dynasty, which was pretty much just Han and, you know, the agricultural heartland, uh, since the Ming Dynasty fell <clears throat> to the Manchus in 1644, <clears throat> 1945 is the first time in which the Chinese have been able to uh, harness their own agricultural or, you know, just their own resources in the heartland to finance their own state. And, you know, you could also then make the argument that they too use this uh, to, to recreate a form of the Chinese empire. Uh, the empire had Tibet and Xinjiang and a lot of Mongols, and so does the, the, the communist state. It, has, it doesn't have outer Mongolia, but it has a lot of Mongols still in their state. They have the Uyghurs, they have the Tibetans. Uh, they still have a lot of ethnic difference. They still have a lot of the lands and the ethnic diversity that the uh, former empires had. Uh, Japan sort of continued a post-industrial revolution uh, version of that nomadic dynamic, uh, and now that's truly over with the U.S.'s inability or lack of desire, whatever, uh, but their inability to recreate that portion of the Japanese empire puts the wealth of China, puts the wealth of the heartland of China in the hands of the Chinese for the first time since 1644. That's your enormously high elevation bird's eye perspective of what's going on here. All right, now let's go uh, turn our attention to ethnic unmixing. All right, something that we talked a lot about in the, in the last episode. The idea that the natural <clears throat> ideal state of Japan is now going to be institutionalized as a homogenous, peaceful nation state toward which anyone not deemed Japanese is considered an irreconcilable outsider. And as we know, this is a sharp break with the discourse that we saw immediately beforehand for the 50 years of Western Empire. Okay, this legacy, this idea of the Yamato race comprising 99.9% .9 of the Japanese population, and it's always been that way, Japan has always been purely Japanese, uh, this, this idea uh, seems unremarkable to most people today. We just sort of accept it. Uh, until you realize how recent of a creation it actually is. All right? That's a very recent creation. 1945, in fact. <laughs> That's it. Uh, we know for the 50 years of empire, this was not the official narrative of who the Japanese were. All right? It was a Mongol race that was seen as a point of pride that was not in pejorative, had no pejorative associations. And they said that the people of Japan had migrated from everywhere in Asia. We are made up of all the people in Asia. Okay. Now, during the Cold War, you will get the manufacturing of a Japanese cultural identity. All right. And that'll be then foisted upon the idea of the Japanese race. The Japanese race are this. Yamato people who have these sort of beliefs, Shinto religion, they'll you know, ignore the fact that Shinto and Buddhism were hopelessly mixed up for the vast majority of Japan's history, they'll say, no, you know, Shintoism, uh, the long line of unbroken emperors, uh, the isolation of the Japanese islands, uh, all this means that we have this pure Yamato race that's always been around. And it's just on these Japanese islands. That's why we shouldn't go beyond these Japanese islands. And three generations of peace, prosperity, and a very strong state education 
will create this manufactured Japanese cultural identity across all classes for the first time. Because we know prior to 1868, your chief identity is your occupation or your class, you know, your economic level. It's not, I'm Japanese, I'm Yamato. It's, I'm a farmer, I'm a miller, or I'm a samurai. Uh, I'm, I'm a ruler, and you're uh, a member of the class that is ruled. Okay? Um, but again, you know, for the umpteenth time during this podcast, I want to remind you one last time. Race is a culturally constructed situational state of mind that is subjective, ambiguous, uh, often has uh, contradictions if you choose to pry beneath uh, racial ethnic labels. If you don't passively accept them, if they aren't naturalized from birth and you actually interrogate them and say, where did this idea of who we are come from? Uh, You'll realize that they change over time, Uh, seemingly arbitrarily in tune with new geopolitical priorities, suddenly it's more convenient for uh, a group of people to be to be defined in a different way. And then you have to convince them that you are this race. And so you put it into uh, pedagogical curriculum in the schools. Um, you put it into state-run media, uh, and everyone buys into this. And you start talking about this nation that's always been around, and these are our natural borders, and we should have these natural borders. Um, you know, but... You know, like I said, categories on the census change every census because our ideas of what comprises a particular race change based on new political priorities, new social developments. Uh, There is no objective, enduring uh, uh, definition of races. I mean, how is it that I'm included in a category now that is deemed white, and yet we have a category of people who are deemed Asian? How is my category a color? And someone else's category is uh, related to geography. And how can you be of the Asian race when the term Asia was brought by Europeans? Uh, Asia was an outsider term imposed upon Asia by the Europeans. And the Japanese were quite resistant to the idea of calling uh, their lands a part of Asia. What is this Asia? That's not our name for this place. We don't believe in that. I mean, you can see, you start prying just behind the surface and you realize how insane this stuff is. And yet we accept it like it's all logical and it makes sense. I'm a color and you're a place and people believe this crap? Come on, think for yourself. We invented these categories. There's nothing more than broad, regional, continental, physiological differences in our sort of bone structure, hair color, and skin pigment. And that's it. Everything else is cultural, not racial. But then we conflate culture with race and think they're one and the same thing. Okay. Um, anti-Western pan-Asian discourse. Last thing I want to talk about. Okay. Something that, uh, I think often gets forgotten about today of all of the legacies of the Japanese empire. This one got written out the quickest because of the U S influence, the U S recreating the Japanese empire. This was not an aspect of the Japanese empire. They wanted to recreate, uh, the anti-Western imperialist discourse, liberation of Asia from these evil, uh, white imperialists for obvious reasons. That's not going to be a discourse. The U S is interested in propagating, Okay. Um, However, it was the most damaging and convincing rhetorical and substantive blow ever given to the age of European empires. The Japanese were, in fact, the only people who were not from, descended from Europe, who uh, thoroughly and repeatedly defeated European and American armies in battle, okay? 
Um, yes, there are isolated, rousing victories throughout the rest of the colonial world in Africa, in India, in China. Um, but when the Western powers truly wanted to put all of their post-industrial revolution force and military might and weapons on the battlefield, they would ultimately win those battles. Okay? When they did that with Japan, they would not. That is the big difference. And that was a huge influence. Okay, it was huge, the effect on the collective non-Western psyche, that this is possible. This is possible. Uh, because when you see people, white people from Europe, who look a certain way, go anywhere they want in the world and win pretty much all the battles they want to win and colonize the entire surface of the globe, it can seem almost, almost like they have some innate special characteristic that allows them to do this. And we're deficient in some way. And maybe this is sort of a racial thing. They are a superior race. Um, and, you know, you get that, not just that idea uh, outside of the Western Empire, sort of, you know, this sense of the inevitable. They're just a superior race. What are we going to do? You get that, obviously, within the Western uh, countries as well, white nationalist movements, you know. Uh, you say, hey, you know, let's not dilute the white race, white skin with these migrants who are coming from abroad and tainting it and whatnot. Uh, let's stop apologizing for what white people did. Let's take credit for creating the modern world. White people did everything. All the famous scientists, all this sort of, it's all white people. It's racial. It's not fortuitous historical conditions <laughs> that allowed the people in one particular part of the world uh, to do things that had never been done before. Um, you know, and it's not the people itself, it's the conditions surrounding them that gave rise to what they were able to do. Okay. Um, but, you know, the Japanese challenged this. They didn't just challenge it, they punctured it. They blew it out of the water. Well, that's a horrible pun when you think about the Pacific uh, battles and whatnot. Uh, but nevertheless, it's true. Okay, and after 1945, yes, there was already other various movements for decolonization and whatnot, and decolonization probably would have happened in various forms eventually. Uh, but the Japanese certainly accelerated that process. They certainly did, despite all the hypocrisy, despite all the self-serving discourse, despite all the cynicism, there was a very real kernel of genuine inspiration of, wow, the Japanese are showing us what's possible. They are showing us what's possible. Uh, there's nothing inherently magical or special about the white people. They can be defeated. They can be challenged. And the Japanese have shown us a roadmap of how you might be able to do that. Okay? The subsequent Japanese hypocrisy doesn't invalidate their original anti-Western salvo. It just shows that Japan ultimately didn't have the solution, that when they got in power and kicked out the Westerners, they'd act the same way. It's just a, pro it's a problem of power. It's not a problem of race. Anyone who gets in power apparently uh, treats the uh, people who are powerless in a very similar way. Okay. Um, and this anti-Western imperialist discourse, liberation discourse, the Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere, Asia for the Asians, um, this does provide a lofty narrative that, if you're so inclined, does make it possible to be nostalgic towards the Japanese empire and view it in a favorable light and minimize some of the negative aspects uh, if anyone tries to bring up those negative aspects. Okay, so the end result is Japan occupies this, this uh, you know, most people would say has uh, generally favorable post-war conditions. 
Um, it's subordinate to the U.S., but that subordinate status has allowed it access to certain markets and whatnot that have allowed it um, to, again, distinguish itself as different from all of Asia to be by far the most economically advanced power um, capital, you know, wealthy capitalist country in all of Asia. And that's only recently being challenged by the rise of China. Uh, but so another, you know, if you want to talk about the Japanese empire, you can almost talk about the Japanese empire lasting 100 years. 50 years in which the Japanese have political and military control and economic control and cultural control. And then another 50 years in which they still have economic and cultural stranglehold over Asia and perhaps even over the entire world. Not a stranglehold, but they're, they're quite prominent. Um, and the only thing they lost at that point was political and military power. Uh, Japan, you know, unofficially, if you're not talking about politics, culturally, sort of economically, still has a great reputation uh, throughout Asia. Uh, you know, if you have to, you know, shove it in someone's face that this comes from, you know, that this is the Japanese who did this or the Japanese history and presence and whatnot. Oh, that'll be criticized. That'll be like, oh, look what you did to us during World War II. But Japan still has this, this, this like uh, aura around it. Oh, if something's made in Japan, that means it's really good. <laughs> that means you know it's not counterfeit, right? Uh, Japanese products, Japanese culture. This is going to be a higher quality than anything else because it's Japan. Yeah, uh, you know, you've got a hundred year Japanese empire um, in which there's a massive political disjuncture about halfway through. And only now with the rise of China in all realms, economic, political, military, I guess not yet cultural, but maybe that's coming. Do you finally have really, you know, a new empire? It won't call itself an empire because no one calls themselves empires anymore. That's a dirty word, uh, but it's the same. You know, you, you have control over vast lands, including many people who are quite different than you. Um, and you find a way to bring them all together in one state, sometimes by odious coercive means, but usually not. Usually by means that give everyone uh, a stake, uh, some sort of an incentive to, to remain inside this state. Um, and, the Jap and the Chinese empire, in this sense, um, minus its cultural influence, I would say, uh, is, is, has finally displaced the Japanese empire, has finally displaced that millennia-long legacy of outsiders coming in to take China's resources in order to create their own empire that has a strong Chinese character to it in the administration, the characters, the language, the script, the people, and whatnot. Um, and now almost, you might say, you're, go, you're, you're going back uh, to a Chinese empire that we haven't seen since 1644, but is now much larger than the Ming Empire ever was. And that is uh, ending the era of outsiders exploiting China's resources. Uh, first nomads, then Japan, um, and now it's uh, it's the Chinese Empire challenging the American Empire, and the American Empire still has uh, Japan in its back pocket. That's all, folks. This is Professor Jacobs signing off on the 61st episode of uh, uh, treating Chinese and Japanese history in both minute detail and from a bird's eye perspective. I'll probably continue to add episodes from time to time on random things that related to East Asian history. But until then, it's been, it's been a pleasure. And I hope you've enjoyed learning a thing or two about all the gray areas of history and all of its complexity. Remember, as far as I'm concerned, history is in, history in its highest calling is in fact therapy. All right, it's therapy. Not only that, it is free therapy. So in a sense, recording these episodes is uh, therapeutic for me, and I hope in some sense for you as well. Take care.